This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWRA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And as always, my co-host is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello again, Alan. Hi, Darren. On today's episode, we're going to focus our attention on Prime Minister Morrison's visit to the United States and his meetings with Donald Trump. We'll turn then to the Gulf, where the tense security situation has been further complicated for Australia, both in terms of imprisoned Australians and the question of energy security. We'll finish with a visit by the Fijian Prime Minister to Canberra and also talk climate change. Okay, let's get started. So we're going to begin with the PM's visit to the US. On the 19th of September, Scott Morrison left for his much-anticipated trip to Washington DC and other cities in the US. This was an official visit that included a state dinner, the first offered in honour of an Australian Prime Minister since George W. Bush hosted John Howard in 2006. Now, we are recording this on Monday the 23rd of September, and the PM is still in the United States, and this week he will deliver Australia's statement at the UN General Assembly meetings in New York. But we already have more than enough to talk about. So, Alan, let's begin by taking a step back because I don't think I've asked a question like this of you before. Can you introduce us to the concept of a state visit overall, where the leaders of two countries meet? What's actually happening during a meeting like this and why does it matter? Well, the whole idea of a state visit dates back centuries, of course. Its origins lie in the elaborate rituals that supported the diplomacy between medieval courts, the things that we still see, like gun salutes and guards of honour and elaborate banquets, Mm. even the exchanges of, of gifts like Morrison's gift to Trump of a statue of an Australian soldier helping an American during the Second World War. So... They have a long history, and they operate really at two levels simultaneously. At one level, they're a symbol of respect for the visiting party by the receiving party, and simultaneously, they're a signal of the power and wealth of the receiving state. So one important purpose is to inspire awe. Most visits between heads of government these days, of course, are far more practical affairs. In Washington, you've got this sort of hierarchy. They they trickle down through official visits to working visits and then um, all of them involving lower levels of protocol and time with the president. Mm. I was never on a state visit in Washington, but I did stay at Blair House, the president's guest house, on an official visit with another Australian Prime Minister years ago, and I can attest that the hairs on your your neck sort of prickle as you look out the window onto the White House. So I can imagine it is a heady experience for the PM's part. Yeah, very cool, I'm sure. Well, the US and Australia already enjoy a highly institutionalised relationship through the alliance. 
Of course, only a few episodes ago, we covered the Ausmin meetings in Sydney when the Secretaries of State and Defence visited their Australian counterparts. And these 2 plus 2 meetings happen every year. Moreover, Morrison had dinner with Trump in Japan just a few months back at the G20 meetings. So the two nations are far from strangers and things are bubbling along all the time. Having said that, I do wonder how much awareness there is of Australia and our issues within the government more broadly and generally in the policy community in Washington, D.C. So, Alan, to what extent does a White House visit galvanise the attention of the policy community and perhaps spur more action within the U.S. system? Does it open a window of opportunity to make progress on issues that are important to us? The awareness of uh, Australia and Washington is certainly there at the official level. You can see it throughout the sort of US system, but we're less visible to the public. Australian prime ministers always want uh, media attention, but we're just not all that newsworthy on the whole. The international visit that got most coverage in the New York Times this week was uh, Narendra Modi's Howdy Modi uh, rally with <laughs> Donald Trump in front of 50,000 mostly Indian Americans uh, in uh, in Texas. Mm. Nevertheless, um, visits like this do serve the useful purpose of focusing attention in both countries on the bilateral agenda, on the issues that can only be resolved at the highest level. And they also um, give sort of impetus to other initiatives like uh, Morrison's announcement about funding for the Australian uh, Space Agency that, mm. you know, might not otherwise have, um, have uh, seen the, uh, the light of day. Okay, well, one last preliminary question. Does anything interesting actually happen at the state dinner itself, given the leaders have already had meetings, or is everyone just there to have a good time and make small talk? Oh, absolutely. Good time and small talk. Okay. Um, not not least because there are too many media microphones and smartphones uh, in the general vicinity to risk uh, anything more than that. But look, as, as I was looking at that dinner, I was reflecting that the one interesting difference between what happens here in Australia and in the US is that in Canberra, the leader of the opposition always has a formal speaking slot in the dinner program in the Great Hall of Parliament House whenever we have an official uh, visit. Uh, that's to emphasise that to the visitor that the welcome is national rather than simply from the party in power. And in contrast, um, I, I couldn't see any senior Democrat in the Rose Garden dinner. Mm, mm. Okay, well, let's then turn to the visit itself. I think the major headline-grabbing moment came at the press conference prior to the bilateral meeting between the two leaders and concerned Iran. But let's put that to one side for the moment. Trump obviously is not a popular leader with two audiences that matter very much to the Prime Minister. One, the Australian public, with a US study centre poll in July finding only 19% of Australians want to see Trump re-elected next year. The second is, of course, the People's Republic of China, given the trade war and other frictions. So, Alan, can you set up this meeting for us? What do you think Morrison hoped to achieve from the meeting, from the visit? 
And what were the landmines that he had to dodge? Well, the first thing he hoped to achieve was what he got, which is an endorsement of him and his government from the President of the United States. And that's important because despite their doubts about Trump, 72% of Australians, according to the Lowy poll, still think the US relationship is important to Australia. Mm. So that was all good. The principal Mm. landmine, of course, was that he was meeting the most unpredictable US president in modern history. This is a man inclined to take personally any perceived slight, someone for whom unpredictability is a political strategy and a man not known for personal loyalty. So however carefully the visit was prepared, there was always that element of danger lurking in the background. The second landmine for Morrison was the 19% figure you mentioned, the critical view Australians have of Donald Trump. So there were dangers for him in being embraced too closely by Trump and having it rebound back home, a sort of, you know, all the way with LBJ Mm -hmm. uh, moment. And finally, domestic politics in the US are also an issue because the Prime Minister had to have it in the back of his mind that there's a reasonable chance that President Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden will be in office before his current term is over. So he needed to frame the relationship as one that reached beyond any individual administration. And you could see his awareness of that in the sort of language that he used in his uh, speeches and commentary. Okay, well, I guess in your assessment, how did he do overall then? I think he did well. Compared with the last two coalition leaders, Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, he seems to have learned by heart John Howard's mantra that Australians want foreign policy to be practical and realistic, practical and realistic. Howard used to repeat that over and over again until everyone was thoroughly bored. (laughs) Uh, And with Morrison, you could see the same approach in all those references in his press conferences to where about jobs and the lines like, every time we go out beyond our shores, it's for only one reason, and that's to advance our national interests. In some ways, Morrison had an easier ride than other allies with Trump because he's the most mercantilist American leader in memory and Australia has a trade deficit with the US. Oh, we, we also got an advantage. I know, did you read this in the um, or see it in the press conference? Uh, Trump seems to believe uh, that Australia buys 100% of our military equipment <laughs> from the United States. <laughs> and uh, you could see our job alert PM becoming a little uncomfortable at, uh, at this and he gently inserted a line a little later that much of Australia's $200 billion defence investment was being built in Australia itself. Mm. So the, t- the two leaders had different domestic audiences in mind here. <laughs> there were references to further work on critical mem- minerals and the uh, worthy enough um, announceable about the space agency $150 million mm. over five years. Uh, those things didn't really require um, prime ministerial visits to bring off, but they were useful enough. But look, I think we've we've got to remember this, Darren, there's still a lot we don't know about the PM's private conversations with the president and other senior leaders. I was struck, uh, for example, by 
Morrison's throwaway reference in a doorstop interview to discussions about, quote, the work we are doing in the South Pacific and setting up more integrated opportunities for us to work together. Or another quote from him, a reference to aligning our views on where we are heading in Indochina. Now, I'm not sure whether Indochina, you know, was um, misspeak for the Indo-Pacific. But mm. um, if not, it was uh, it was interesting. But uh, but we you know we'll have to wait for the um, uh, for the slow leaks <laughs> to come out about some of those questions. Well, the two of them clearly seem to get along quite well. You know, for example, when asked about George W. Bush's description of John Howard as a man of steel, Trump replied that he thought of Morrison as a man of titanium saying that he was, quote, a man of real, real strength and a great guy. On net, is ScoMo's close personal relationship with the Donald a net positive for Australia? Because I can see upsides and downsides to being that close to Donald. I doubt that titanium line will stick. Morrison seems to me anyway to be more a man of flexible carbon alloy <laughs> the graphene man, perhaps. And I, I, I do say that with real admiration. Some personal relationships between Australian and American leaders have mattered. Uh, Howard and Bush, of course, which uh, gave us the uh, free trade agreement and Australia's participation in the G20. Keating's relationship with uh, Bill Clinton delivered APEC leaders meetings. Some, and you can think here of Bob Hawke and Ronald Reagan, uh, got on very well despite coming from very different mm. political backgrounds. Others like Abbott and Obama really found it hard to dis yeah. disguise their <laughs> their personal uh, dislike for each other. But the relationship has shown its capacity to survive individual differences, as uh, as Morrison said. So my own suspicion is that Morrison is a calculating and cautious enough politician to know how to work with Trump, but never to depend entirely uh, on him. Mm. Well, let's finish on that notorious press conference. And in fact, it wasn't even a press conference. It was a pool spray, um, which normally, as I understand it, is only supposed to go for a minute or two where the leaders can say hello, but it ended up going for almost 30. And it was held in the Oval Office itself before the actual meeting. And so if we can contrast it with the official press conference held after the meeting where the two leaders show up at lecterns, and so everyone's crammed into the Oval Office, and I can remember hearing the voice of Chris Ullman asking one of the questions. So it must be a very intimate space. And you can see, if you watch the YouTube of it, you can see the two leaders sitting on the edges of their chairs, leaning forward, you know, the media and the microphones crowded around them. And so there are, there are two aspects of this extraordinary event I want to raise specifically. The first was when the President was asked, you know, Mr. President, will you be asking Australia to do more when it comes to China, to which Trump responded, well, we are talking about China all the time, and Scott has very strong opinions on China, and I think I'll let him maybe express those opinions. Maybe you do it right now. You're not going to get a better audience than this. 
end quote. So Alan, what on earth is poor ScoMo thinking at this precise moment? Maybe he's wishing he was back home in the Shire watching the Rugby World Cup on TV. Can you talk us through exactly what he must have been thinking? <laughs> well, like you, I was looking at that video coverage of the PM and you could see behind his eyes the look of a man whose mind is furiously racing away behind that fixed mm. smile. I had never actually read an entire transcript of a Trump press conference before, and it really is a dizzying experience, even for those of us who weren't in the room. Dan Flitton had a good piece about this on the Lowy Interpreter. You get some sense of how hard it must be in the US system to operate when its leader riffs in this way. We had completely meaningless lines on China, like, and I'm quoting him, we're taking in billions and billions of dollars in tariffs as though tariffs are a tax being paid by Beijing. Mm -hmm. Or when he said, quote, the media of our country is laughed at all over the world. You're a joke. And he said that to American and Australian reporters as we simultaneously try to argue the values of free press in regard to China. Or his uh, threat to drop off Guantanamo uh, Bay prisoners at the borders of European (laughs) countries. You have to keep reminding yourself that this is the President of the United States speaking in the Oval Mm. Office. In the face of all that, I thought the PM did well on China. He simply repeated long-standing Australian policy out of successive governments, to quote his words, we have a great relationship with China. China's growth has been great for Australia, but we have to make sure we all compete on the same playing field. Well, fair enough. Well, then, of course, we turn to Trump's pronouncements on Iran. And first, at the top of this, remember, supposedly brief pool spray, he sort of begins by saying, if I could just interrupt for a minute, uh, and announces new sanctions and brings in Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin essentially as a human prop to confirm how severe these new sanctions were. And again, I, I recommend just pulling up the video on YouTube because it's, it's quite a remarkable viewing experience. And then when he was asked whether he would need to build a coalition against Iran, the president, after first stating that he, he liked coalitions and calling out some European countries, said the following, and I'm trying to quote him directly here. Look, The United States is in a class by itself. We have the most powerful military in the world by far. There is nobody close. As you know, we have spent tremendous, and hopefully, and we pray to God, we never have to use it. But we've totally renovated and bought new nuclear, and the rest of our military is all brand new. The nuclear now is at a level that it's never been before. And I can only tell you because I know. I know the problems of nuclear. I know the damages that. I know what happens. And I want to tell you. We all hope. And Scott hopes. We all pray that we never have to use nuclear. But there's nobody that has anywhere close to what we have. End quote. I suppose. Anyway, Alan, in our next story, I'm going to ask you about Iran and three Australians that are currently imprisoned there. Um, and of course, our agreed deployment to join the Americans in the maritime security mission in the Gulf. So can I just ask now, it's safe to assume that the Prime Minister had zero idea that any of this was going to happen, right? Can I just get you to react to, to that? 
Well, I think you can safely assume that he had zero idea, or, or at least not until just before, about how it would all pan out at the press conference. But look, while you're on that, I was struck by those words that you quoted from Trump about the US military, uh, uh, built up, by the way, that he ascribed entirely to himself. Uh, <laughs> But the um, problem is the way those lines that, you know, the US is in a class by itself, we have the most powerful military in the world, there's nobody close, how that cuts across his other talking points about China. He's asked about China later and says, well, obviously China is a threat to the world in a sense because they're building a military faster than, uh, than anybody. Yeah, consistency of Trump's statements across time has, has never been his strong point, even within the space of a few sentences. And there's a great, I guess, thing on Twitter that someone will always tweet the line, there is always a tweet, and they'll find a statement that Trump has said recently, and then they'll find a tweet from the history of his Twitter timeline that says the exact opposite thing um, from years ago. So, yeah, this is entirely unsurprising. So before we move on, can I use these events as, I guess, context for a broader question? And I ask this also agreeing that I think the Prime Minister did very well and navigated an incredibly tricky situation uh, in DC. So my question is, who is Australia's chief diplomat? Is it the Prime Minister or is it the Foreign Minister? How much do we need an engaged and deft Prime Minister for Australian foreign policy to succeed compared with the foreign minister? There's no doubt that the prime minister is the key player in foreign policy, no matter who the occupant of the position may be. And that's been so even with prime ministers who begin with little interest in the wider world, like uh, John Howard and Julia Gillard. You know, if you're defining the chief diplomat as the chief negotiator, that can be different sometimes. I suppose Gareth Evans played that role for um, Hawke and Keating and Casey for, for Menzies, Julie Bishop too at times, I suppose. But the weight and the uh, heft is always at the centre because the Prime Minister alone can speak authoritatively for the government as a whole and represent the country. And this is especially true because our head of state only represents the United Kingdom when she travels abroad or receives uh, visitors like Donald Trump in London. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, well, let's move on to our second item, which is to look specifically at Iran, which is continuing to receive significant media coverage in Australia after reports named two Australian travel bloggers who had been recently detained in the state. This increases the number of Australians detained in Iran to three. The two travel bloggers are reportedly being detained in Tehran's Evan prison for flying a drone near a military facility. Whilst the details of the case are still a bit hazy, the Iranian government has confirmed their arrest and indictment. Unrelated to these two bloggers is the case of Dr Kylie Moore Gilbert, an academic specialising in Middle East politics who is a lecturer at the University of Melbourne and who was arrested all the way back in September of 2018. Not much more is known about her case, although reports indicate she has been sentenced to 10 years imprisonment and is also currently being held in Evan Prison in solitary confinement. In response to this reporting, Australia's Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, made a statement in the Australian Senate stating that Whilst Australia was making consular representations, quote, 
The best chance of a successful outcome for these three Australians is with Iran through diplomatic channels and not through the media. End quote. So, Alan, to begin, this is obviously a very distressing for the families and the detainees. And, of course, the Australian government does need to be careful in how it deals with these issues publicly and speaks about them. Can you just remind us, what does consular assistance look like in these sorts of cases, especially when the other country is you know, a country and a government like Iran? As DFAT's Smart Traveller website keeps reminding Australians, um, when you travel overseas, you're subject to the laws of the countries you find yourselves in. Article 36 of the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations, which is the sort of international instrument governing all this, allows consular officials access to citizens of their countries under restricted circumstances, but they can only monitor their treatment according to local laws and uh, and make representations. So it's enormously difficult in cases like this. As the foreign minister says, and presumably the embassy in Tehran agrees, the interests of the Australians who are imprisoned there will be better served by actions that take place outside the public eye than by, uh, you know, widespread public focus. And look, all we can do is uh, hope very much that that's, uh, that's what happens. Okay. But I guess that's not the only thing happening on in our bilateral relationship because, of course, we covered in a recent episode Australia's agreement to join the United States in a maritime security operation in the Strait of Hormuz. And the difficult balancing act facing the government, given our continued support for the nuclear deal that Donald Trump withdrew from. So with this in mind, I read an article in The Guardian this past week, and I'll post it in the show notes, that said, quote, Canberra's adherence to a hawkish US policy has undermined its ability to negotiate with the paranoid and sanctions-squeezed regime in Tehran. Alan, if this is correct, I'm guessing the Oval Office press conference would not likely have made things any easier for Scott Morrison and and the Australian government. I mean, is this correct? Would Iran link these types of consular issues to the broader political relationship? Well, I think there's always a danger that they might do so, but I hope that they would read Morrison's actual words about Australia's engagement in the Gulf at the press conference. As we said when we were talking about the original commitment, Mm. the PM is being very cautious indeed in uh, limiting it to the specific issue of freedom of navigation Mm. in the Straits of Hormuz. Mm. He keeps repeating that there's been no discussion about anything else. He rather surprisingly, but probably cleverly, commended the president for his instinct towards restraint in the Gulf. And uh, in one of my favourite lines, he noted, and I'm quoting him directly here, the other matters that are being pursued by the United States are matters that they are pursuing, (laughs) end quote. So you can read into that a a distancing of the Australian position from uh, automatic 
you know, shoulder to shoulder support for the US. Yeah, that was almost the most impressive aspect of Scott Morrison's performance, actually. I mean, by commending Trump and the US government for its restraint, he's sort of managed to seem to induce Trump himself to then riff about how his exercising <laughs> of restraint was the true signal of power, that it would be very easy for him to just yeah, you know, push a yeah. button and, and tell his military there and then in that Oval Office with the media present to blow around <laughs> to smithereens. But actually the powerful thing to do was to exercise restraint. So if it's true that, that Morrison's use of that language actually led Trump there, that could indeed shape the administration's policy into the future, and that would be a fantastic thing. So, yeah, very impressive. But before we move on from Iran, of course, the bigger story from the region these past few weeks has been the allegation made by the governments of Saudi Arabia and the United States that Iran was behind a highly sophisticated drone attack on Saudi oil facilities that temporarily knocked out around half of the kingdom's oil production, revealing how fragile the global security of oil supply can actually be. Now, there is a clear Australian angle here because there is an obligation imposed by Australia's membership of the International Energy Agency that we hold 90 days of net fuel imports in reserve. The last assessment, though, by the Australian government put our actual holdings at 53 days, though as little as 18 days of petrol, 22 days of diesel and 23 days of jet fuel. Now, contrast this with the 700 million barrels held by the United States, which could keep the country and its economy going for around six months. Nor in Australia do we have much refining capacity, so we rely on Singapore and other East Asian partners to refine crude oil for us. Alan, this has been an issue that's been sort of coming and going in the Australian press over the past few years, and it's quite an interesting one because it strikes me that Perhaps the reason we you know, are in violation of our obligations is because we have always had a deep faith in, in markets, a deep faith in, in, in the rules-based order to provide us with our energy. And, and we've long enjoyed you know, a fairly cosy, benign security situation um, and almost maybe can't imagine that oil supplies could ever dry up and that this lack of imagination might be behind our poor performance in this area. I mean, do you have a comment on this? Oh, well, look, I agree with you, Darren. This has been an issue on Australia's agenda for many years. We've knowingly been in breach of an international agreement, mainly because it's expensive and there are always more pressing things for governments to do mm. with the money and because it seemed that it would be all right on the night and that international markets would work. So, the drone or cruise missile or whatever it was attacks on the Saudi oil facilities have again reminded us that Morrison's remarks about freedom of navigation through the Straits of Hormuz as an important Australian interest have an immediacy that goes beyond, you know, broad support for the um, mm. law of the sea and the rules-based international order. Okay, well, let's move to our third item. And before he headed off to the United States, Prime Minister Morrison hosted Fijian Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama in Canberra. Now, Alan, we expect to be dedicating an entire episode to Australia's diplomacy in the South Pacific very soon. So I don't want to get into too much depth here. 
So let me just ask one question. Former Commodore Baini Marama orchestrated a coup all the way back in 2006 in Fiji, which at the time saw Australia impose sanctions, and Fiji was also suspended from the Pacific Islands Forum. However, since then, Baini Marama has won two democratic elections, and bilateral relations between Canberra and Suva have been normalised. And the Fijian Prime Minister has become somewhat of a prominent global advocate on the issue of climate change. And of course, most recently, Baini Marama had some highly critical comments about Morrison's performance at the Pacific Islands Forum meeting that we discussed in a previous episode, though he did walk those back somewhat. So, Alan, I presume that the Prime Minister's visit was well into the planning stages when he then made those criticisms of Scott Morrison at the Pacific Islands Forum. And Morrison obviously decided that, nevertheless, the visit should still proceed. Can you talk us through, then, how Australia's interests shape our decision-making calculus on the question of hosting someone as controversial or maverick as the Fijian Prime Minister for a visit? It's important to remember that history, Darren. As, as you said, Frank Baini Marama originally came to power in a military coup, and when the Fiji Court of Appeal declared the coup illegal in April 2009, he simply abrogated the uh, constitution. Australia and New Zealand were concerned by this attack on democratic values, and, and we imposed sanctions against the leadership personally, and we helped uh, exclude Fiji from uh, membership, both the Pacific Islands Forum and the Commonwealth. None of this had any effect on Baini Marama, who responded, among other things, with a uh, look north policy focused on China. So after the announcement of a new constitution and elections, and Baini Marama's uh, party won these convincingly, uh, Australia restored full relations in 2014, but uh, Frank obviously no. hasn't forgotten, and that sort of resentment still lies but behind some of his digs against Australia. But, you know, Fiji is obviously one of the key Pacific players, and if Australia wants a Pacific step up, we can't do it without Fiji. So there are all sorts of lessons here on the impact of sanctions and the relationship between values and interests in foreign and policy. And the debate between a sort of a hard-headed realism and a, a more ideology-focused liberalism as well, I think. So very interesting. All right. Well, finally, given that this past week saw the, the global climate strike in which thousands of protesters, many of them school students, participated in a big sort of walkout, we really can't conclude this podcast without discussing climate change. With the annual meetings of the UN General Assembly occurring this week, as I mentioned, the UN is also holding a climate summit, which will happen today, later today, after we have finished recording in New York. However, despite being in the United States and indeed you know, travelling to New York for the General Assembly meetings, Prime Minister Morrison will not attend this climate summit. Instead, he'll be travelling to Ohio with President Trump to open a new factory. Rather, Australia is being represented by Foreign Minister Maurice Payne. Now, interestingly, she won't be allowed to speak 
as Australia, along with countries including Japan, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, and, of course, the United States itself, have been barred from the main stage. My understanding is that Australia's support for coal is the reason for the exclusion. But more broadly, to use the words of UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres, he wants countries and governments, quote, to bring plans, not speeches. Alan, we're obviously not alone here in being excluded, and the frictions our climate change policy perspective uh, is creating with our South Pacific neighbours are well known. But I'm wondering, is our stance a problem for Australian multilateral diplomacy more generally? Well, my own view is that, yes, it is. I'm not so concerned about Maurice Payne attending the UN meeting rather than Morrison, but there's no question that climate change and changes in the Earth's biosphere more generally, oceans and so on, are hugely important for every international actor ranging from the world's smallest countries to its largest companies. Um, neither Donald Trump nor Xi Jinping will have anything remotely like the long-term influence on Australia's relations with the world as this. But the government's failure for reasons of internal disagreement to be able to frame a coherent policy, especially domestically, means, in my view, that it's marginalising itself from one of the core international debates of our time. Even the cautious words of this government's own 2017 foreign policy white paper said that responses to climate change will be an important influence on international affairs and on Australia's economy. So as someone who believes in the role of foreign policy in addressing international problems and in the positive contribution that Australia can make, I do think it's a pity that a clearer Australian voice is not being heard here and that we, in effect, have no uh, multilateral diplomacy on this question. Okay, well, on that note, let's wrap up with our final segment, as always, reading, listening and watching. <clears throat> Alan, what have you been reading, listening or watching lately? Well, my reading relates to another Australian Prime Minister who faced challenges similar to those we've been talking about for Scott Morrison. How, in a world which is changing fundamentally, where we're sometimes asked to go one way by our close partners, but our interests point in another, can Australia make its way? I've been reading um, J.B. Chifley, An Ardent Internationalist by Julie Suarez, which was published a couple of months ago by Melbourne mm. University Press. Chifley was Prime Minister from 1945 to 1949. Australia had emerged from the war into a, an entirely new world. Independence movements were challenging European colonial rule in our region the building blocks of the rules-based international economic order were being laid down in Bretton Woods, and the Cold War was about to remake the global geopolitical landscape. At the same time, we were trying to conclude peace treaties with uh, Japan and Germany. Most of the studies of Australian foreign policy during this immediate post-war period focus on Doug Evatt, the external affairs minister, and his role in the creation of the United Nations. But Suarez, I think, convincingly restores Chifley to a central position, shows how important he was in securing Australian support 
for the independence struggle in Indonesia and in India. He had a, a really close relationship with the Indian Prime Minister Nehru. She demonstrates his critical part in ensuring the passage of legislation enabling Australia to join the World Bank and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, despite really strong opposition from within his own party. She shows how far-sighted he was in his belief that peace treaties with Germany and Japan needed to enable them to rebuild their economies if future conflict was to be avoided. Not one of these positions had widespread popular appeal in Australia, and one of the most useful contributions the book makes is explaining how Chifley himself, calm, plain-spoken, drawing on his own experiences, went about building community support for a position which set Australia up well for the following uh, 50 years. The book, in both style and form, still carries some of the weight of its origins as a PhD thesis, but it's an important contribution to understanding Chifley himself and how Australian governments, and his was much weaker and smaller than ours is now, can help shape outcomes in the world. Mm, I think that also links quite well back to my question to you earlier, Alan, about who Australia's chief diplomat is. Because from what I'm from hearing that what you're saying, you have the externally facing role of negotiator. There is a need, of course, to build political support within your own country to do anything. And without that political support, yeah. uh, as we've discussed many times on the podcast previously, you can you know pull out the the, the foundations of the rules based order um, and all the different aspects of it, whether in the security or economic uh, realms, um, quite quickly. And so it, it sort of speaks to a different skill set um, that's needed for successful foreign policy. Um, and whether you know how that division of labour goes between the prime minister and the, and the foreign minister, I guess might vary, um, but. Uh, Clearly, from this past week and, and from, from the story of Chifley, we see how important the PM can be on these very big questions. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just want to recommend an article in Tablet magazine uh, titled, Nobody Understands Democracy Anymore. And the author is Shani Moore. Uh, it's a review of some recent books uh, that allege a crisis in democracy including Yasha Monk's work, The People Versus Democracy, which I have read and thought was, was very good. It makes a powerful argument about what democracy really means in the 21st century, and that is the creation of institutions and norms through which people can legitimately disagree. And the most fundamental of these institutions is that of representation. You know, that you, that the election of, of representatives to negotiate and to find compromises and pathways that can be acceptable to all. And therefore, it shows, I think, quite clearly why David Cameron's decision to call the Brexit referendum was so flawed, because in giving essentially a yes-no question, it deprived everyone, both those who voted to leave the European Union and those who voted to remain, it deprived them of the mechanisms to resolve their disagreement. Um, which Moore argues should be conducted by elected representatives. That's the job of parliamentarians. It's not the job of people. So it's a very interesting and I think very powerful argument, and I'll post a, sh a link to it in the show notes. Okay, well, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AAA intern James Hayne for his help with research and audio editing. 
XC Chong for his research support and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you again soon.